This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the commencement ceremonies for the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to Goldman School faculty, students, and staff. Welcome to family, friends, and most of all, welcome to the graduating class of 2018. My name is Henry Brady. I have the great honor to be the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, today we are here to honor, celebrate, and congratulate the Goldman School's 49th MPP class, our second graduating MPA class, and two outstanding doctoral graduates. Let me tell you a little bit about GSPP for for the families and friends and others who are here. The Goldman School of Public Policy was founded in 1969, actually, as the Graduate School of Public Policy.、Uh, it was one of the nation's first graduate programs to not just focus on public administration—that is to say, the implementation or execution of a law—but instead to also focus on the conception of a law, the design of laws. The idea was that. You, it's not really such a great idea to implement a bad law. Let's see if we can't come up with better laws and better ways of making government work. And that's been the mission of the Goldman School of Public Policy since its inception. Today, the Goldman School is ranked number one in the country. And we're trying hard to make sure that we remain number one. Public policy analysis deals with the hard problems faced in the public and nonprofit sectors, where we must bring political values to bear on public problems to find the most effective way to solve those problems. In the process, we are often confronted with difficult moral dilemmas. Let me give an example. As with every year. And as the 2018 MPP and MPA classes know very, very well, we worked very hard this year to find a graduate speaker, graduation speaker for today, and we had a wonderful person lined up, Angela Glover Blackwell, who is the head of PolicyLink, a wonderful organization based in Oakland that's gained prominence in the movement to use public policy to improve access and opportunity for all low-income people. Especially in the areas of health, housing, transportation, and infrastructure, PolicyLink is our kind of organization. It brings policy analysis to public policy problems. On Thursday evening, we heard that Angela Glover Blackwell could not come because she wanted to observe the request made by the unions currently negotiating their contracts with UC for commencement speakers to boycott Berkeley's graduation exercises. In an email to me, she said, "We 
We have been monitoring the speaker's boycott this week, and the union just communicated that the boycott is still on. So I must regretfully cancel my appearance at Monday's ceremony. Please convey my apologies and best wishes to the graduates. So I send you Angela's best wishes. What I want to do is talk a little bit about the decision that she faced and note that she faced a situation that will undoubtedly confront every one of our graduates at more than one moment in their careers. Each each of us, each of us, sometimes disagrees with decisions and stances made by the institutions (laughs) with which we are connected. (laughs) At those times, we have to decide whether we will engage in the famous words of economist Albert Hirschman, whether we will engage in exit, voice, or loyalty. One option is loyalty, simply continuing to undertake the commitments we have made and to dutifully carry them out. This carries with it the risks of being complicit with acts that we might feel are mistakes or even morally wrong. But loyalty is also an investment in institutions. It is a statement that we know that they might know things we don't know, that they might be beset with imperatives that require the actions they take, or that they might engage in short-term compromises for long-term gains. This investment in institutions can make it possible to solve problems in the future. So loyalty is one option. Another option is exit from an institution or obligation if you feel you would be morally compromised by being associated with its actions. This disengagement can be either vociferous or quiet. On the vociferous side, one can exit with a strong statement about one's concerns, as did my friend, Health and Human Services Assistant Secretary Peter Edelman in September 1996 when he resigned in protest from the Clinton administration and said of the then new welfare bill, I have devoted the last 30 years to doing whatever I could to help in reducing poverty in America. I believe the recently enacted welfare bill goes in the opposite direction. So Peter resigned in protest. Another famous example would be the resignations of Attorney General Elliot Richardson and the Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus in October 1973 in protest against Richard Nixon's famous firing of Watergate prosecutor Archibald Cox. Richardson went on to become Secretary of Commerce under Gerald Ford, and Ruckelshaus became head of the Environmental Protection Agency under Ronald Reagan. So although resignation and protest can sometimes ruin a career, and it's a big step to take, in these two cases it enhanced the stature and reputation of Richardson and Ruckel's house. Alternatively, one can simply exit an institution or an obligation unobtrusively, without apparent complaint, as in those who resign to seek other opportunities or to spend more time with their family. Sometimes this outcome is the result of simply wanting to leave quietly without causing a ruckus. At other times, it's the face-saving result of having threatened to resign to get the institution to rethink its position, but failing to succeed in getting any changes made. Threats to resign must be used sparingly. 
Otherwise, they become empty threats. Henry Kissinger is famous for apparently constantly saying he would resign from the Nixon administration, and Richard Nixon knew full well that was highly unlikely. As dean, I have only threatened to resign once. When I th- <laughs> but it was a time when I thought my institution had made an egregiously poor decision. Luckily, the result was a re- this resulted in a reversal of that decision. An option between exit and loyalty is to stay within an institution and to exercise voice concerning its policies, to point out their deficiencies, and to propose alternatives. Angela Glover Bockwell could have chosen to come to our graduation and make the case for the union's positions. It would have been instructive to hear someone we admire discuss these issues as they were unfolding. But the problem with this option is that it can seem as half-hearted and sometimes even as complicit. And I think that Ms. Blackwell believes that not giving the graduation speech sent a clearer message. It is certainly important to respect the decision of someone who thinks that the only option is exit, since it is awfully, often a costly and difficult one. I don't want to judge what Angela did. Each of us has to deal with these situations as we see fit, and there is no right answer. We will all find ourselves remaining loyal to institutions when we wish we could indicate that we find their positions to be flawed or even morally wrong. We will find moments when we have to raise our voices and protest what our institutions are doing even though that may cost us esteem, resources, and even promotion within our institutions. And in some instances, we will have to exercise exit because no other course of action seems acceptable. The joy of working in the public and nonprofit sectors is the chance to advance important values and concerns. But with that goes the obligation to wrestle with moral dilemmas. For the graduates of 2018, my great hope is that your GSPP education has provided you with the wisdom to figure out the best course of action and the courage to do the right thing. So, to our graduates, we hope you will experience the same sense of accomplishment as the many graduates who preceded you over the years. I speak on behalf of the faculty and staff at the Goldman School as we have all witnessed the extraordinary accomplishments that you've already performed during your time at GSBP and before. And we are proud of each and every one of you through your IPAs, your internships, your APAs, and capstones, you have already contributed a lot to the public welfare. One of the most exciting things about being Dean of the Goldman School is learning about the extraordinary things that our alums do. Today's graduate have already done amazing things, and you will go on to do even more amazing things. And all of us, the faculty and the staff, will enjoy and be thrilled by what you do. Now more than ever, let me say it again, now more than ever, Nothing could be more important than to have dedicated, committed, thoughtful, and immensely talented individuals, which you are, who want to solve the world's problems. 
I thank you for that. I feel blessed that I've had the opportunity to witness your hard work since you started at GSPP, and I'll have the pleasure of watching you change the world for the better. I will watch with great anticipation, and I will surely be awestruck by all of your accomplishments. Now let me move to some thanks. This event has a special significance for everyone here today. Let us begin by thanking all of the families, spouses, partners, children, and friends. I'd like to recognize the people in your lives who have played a critical role in supporting you and helping you, comforting you, uh, and making sure that you could get through the rigors of GSPP. So my thanks again to the family, the friends, the children, the spouses, and everyone who's helped so much. Thank you. I also want to thank our amazing student services team led by Martha Chavez. But, and, and to Lila Brie and Cecile Kabakugan, who did that amazing choreography to get you on in your seats. Their fantastic work and diligence made today possible, and you cannot begin to imagine all the details that go into making this happen, and they do it so incredibly well. It looks simple. So thank you. I also want to... Uh, Note that Mike O'Hare uh, is retiring this year, and so this will be his last graduation as an active faculty member, and Mike is right there. Now, Mike's going to be back because we're going to call him back to teach courses because he does it so well. Uh, so we're, we're not going to lose his, his services. We'll just pay him less. Uh, <laughs> actually, the truth. Uh, <laughs> so um, I also want to thank the two deans, Martha Chavez and Annie Campbell Washington, who have done such great jobs with the MPP and the uh, uh, MPA and the PhD program. So my thanks to Martha and Annie Campbell Washington. Okay, so MPP, MPA, PhD graduates, through your hard work and determination during your time at GSPP, you have successfully completed your degrees. And today, we're getting together to join uh, with you and to join with a community of GSPP alumni of 2,000 plus who have gone out into the world and made a big difference. As our newest group of alumni, we look forward to all of the exciting work that you're going to do. So congratulations and good luck, class of 2018.
Our next speaker is Evan White. He's an MPP JD alum from the class of 2012, and this is his second year as a member of the GSBP Alumni Association Board of Directors. Evan is also the founding executive director of the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley, an extraordinarily interesting and innovative organization that's working with the organizations and, and governments in the state of California to try to make a difference by using large data, data science kinds of methods, to solve problems. I want to welcome Evan, who has shown the kind of extraordinary work that our graduates do to the stage as our alumni representative. Evan. Thank you, Henry, and good morning. Uh, as Henry said, my name is Evan White, and I'm the executive director of the California Policy Lab, uh, and also a proud 2012 graduate of the Goldman School of Public Policy MPP program. Thank you. Uh, six, six years ago, I sat where you do today, uh, ripe with the newfound knowledge of a Goldman degree, the fresh toolbox of skills that GSPP conferred upon me was like a soft glow that radiated from my every pore. Do you feel it? I'm getting a contact tie just standing here. Uh, it's beautiful, and it's unstoppable, and you're going to change the world, and you get to decide how to do it. What I didn't realize then, but what I appreciate now, is that my colleagues from the Goldman School would be a constant presence in my career. This past week, and I counted, I spoke to eight different GSPP graduates in my work-related uh, life. Eight. Uh, so look to your left. And look to your right. These folks will hire you. They will refer you. They will give you advice, and they will seek advice from you. You will have the benefit of their collective wisdom, and you will have the support of their collective bond, a bond forged in the crucible of problem sets and state of code and <laughs> seminar discussions and fall feasts and talent shows. Uh, I am currently a member of the GSPP Alumni Board of Directors, as, as Henry mentioned, which is comprised of 15 dedicated GSPP alums who actively work to support the school by engaging in initiatives that benefit current students and alumni. And in that role, I am pleased to stand before you today to congratulate you on completing your degrees. And on behalf of the Goldman School alumni community, I officially welcome all of you, PhDs, MPAs, MPPs, to the Goldman School of Public Policy Alumni Association. As an alumnus of UC Berkeley and the Goldman School, I'm confident that you will take this degree and make a difference in the work you do. Today, you join a community of over 2,000 plus GSPP alums who are dedicated to making the world a better place and who are committed to helping the school achieve this goal by being a resource to GSPP faculty, staff, and most importantly, students and alumni. As our newest members of the Alumni Association, I also want to encourage you to consider the several ways you can give back to the school. 
Whether you give back by volunteering your time to help current and prospective students, by providing opportunities and connections for internships, IPAs, APAs, capstones, jobs, or by giving back financially, which you have already started to do with today's class gifts to the school. These are some of the many ways in which you can give back to the school, and we look forward to working with you on those endeavors. So again, on behalf of the Goldman School Public Policy Alumni Association and its board of directors, welcome to the Alumni Association and congratulations to the class of 2018. Now I'd like to invite up to the podium Alithia McFarlane, who was selected by her... You can see why Alithia was selected by her MPP classmates to address this class of 2017. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. I want to start by thanking you, my peers, not only for selecting me to be your commencement speaker, but for giving me the opportunity to do one more 32-hour project. Because after submitting my APA at 1.30 in the morning on Friday, I definitely thought to myself, yeah, I could do another thing. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it truly is a great honor. And I would like to extend my gratitude and appreciation to the friends and family that have come to witness this ceremony and share in this celebration, something that is already laudable in its own right, but given that it is 10 a.m. on a Monday, is downright award-worthy. <laughs> Like many of you, coming to this journey's conclusion has left me feeling reflective. And as I look back at the last two years, I find myself returning to a particular category of discussion, the numerous conversations about the conversations we don't have at GSPP. Our classwork has found us, it has been rigorous, time-consuming, and has found us drinking from the fire hydrant of skill and knowledge. And yet this desire for the often unsaid, ignored, and neglected persists. Finding outlets in class survey responses, in student-led courses and workshops. Because even after we flattened our long-run supply curves, <laughs> decomposed our Oaxaca blinders, and executively summarized our no more than four-page memos, we know that policy encompasses not just the technical, but the normative, not just the quantitative, but the qualitative, not just the economic, but the ethical. <laughs> of these oft unspoken dynamics, the one that, fa that fascinates me the most is power. I find that it often has a negative connotation that the first thing that comes to mind is its corrupting influence on the people who wield it, of its potential to be abused as the evil against which the good guys rebel. In the past, I determined that only a fixed amount of this thing called power could exist within the world, divided in a manner that um, favored a privileged few, 
exercised and leveraged in proportion to the amount possessed. In this view, the status quo can only be changed when power is redistributed or relinquished. Now, I conceptualize power not as something to which values are attached or something that is inherently negative or is a zero-sum game, but as a benign creative force capable of being exercised by all at the level of the individual and the institution, from the political to the economic to the cultural. <laughs> Power is the ability to create the conditions that are necessary for a particular outcome to occur. And so instead of living in a world where power straightforwardly um, wins by merit of magnitude and possession, we live in a world of interconnected manifestations of attempts to exert power. Ultimately, there will be the realization of some dominant constructs but the existence of alternate designs and potential realities are never, are never extinguished. And so in this view, the status quo is always in constant tension with possibility. The paradigm of what is, is in conflict with the promise of what if. And so if power is a creative force, then policy is fundamentally power. To propose a policy is to propose a vision of the way things should be. To pass a policy is to work toward creating it. Policies can create a world where red lines divide neighborhoods, where pipelines run from schools to prisons, where dreamers are deferred, where potholes get filled, where housing isn't a crisis, where death isn't a penalty, where travel is banned, where sea levels rise, where infrastructure is crumbling, where healthcare is universal, where Flint actually has clean water. Now, the point of this spiel is not to imply that receiving this degree is the equivalent of suddenly being endowed with power. But this degree confers upon us all an additional layer of credibility, the burden of responsibility, a trapping of the elite, maybe even expertise, <laughs> maybe the title of decision maker. Maybe this degree will grant you a seat at the table in the room where it happens. And maybe it means that your words will carry more weight and so that the chances that you advance your vision of the way things should be whatever that may be, will become even greater. But if any group had to be trusted with this charge, I am happy that it is you all. I have been in awe of the class of 2018 since day one. Your entrepreneurship, your advocacy, your humility, your compassion. The ways I've seen you exercise your power since being here, from the numerous workshops organized by TAP, to your work on the Burke Summit, to the Skip Symposium, to the Resistance School at Berkeley, have inspired me and made me optimistic for whatever you will do in the future. But of all the things that our class has made, the thing that has given me the most joy and brings me the most solace is the sense of community that we have created. I make no claims of perfection. Any set of relationships will encounter friction along the way. There are some of you with whom I am not close, others who have hurt me, 
and surely some that I have hurt or disappointed along the way. This feeling isn't predicated on consensus as we have our share of ideological disagreements as well. Neither is this to say that I have experienced complete content in these two years. It has had its fair share of loneliness, frustration, and inadequacy. But I have never once doubted whether or not I belong to the class of 2018. And so I hope you use your influence and standing to replicate this feeling wherever life takes you next, so that the people around you may feel heard and valued in the way that I, and I hope that you, have felt heard and valued here. I can't promise that we will encounter success or that we will avoid the pitfalls of failure or that our work will be appreciated for its true value. That is beyond my knowledge and frankly above my pay grade. <laughs> but I do know that wherever life takes us next, more often than not, we will be more than qualified to hold the jobs that we will have. I look forward to seeing what we will create. Thank you and congratulations to you all. would like to call Muna Ito to the podium, who was selected by her MPA classmates, who was selected by her MPA classmates to speak on behalf of the MPA class of 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished members of faculty, staff members, families, and fellow graduates, good morning. On behalf of the graduating MPA class of 2018, I would like to say welcome and thank you for celebrating this special day with us. As we begin this exciting and exuberant post-graduation chapter, we are all filled with an overwhelming sense of accomplishment, a deep pride in the work we've put in over these last super accelerated 12 months <laughs> and a self-assured confidence that we will be the change agents that our neighborhoods, communities, and institutions are crying out for. But bringing positive, lasting, and meaningful change is not just about taking on big public policy challenges only. Taking consistent little steps towards everyday democracy is just as important. Imagine a world where there is no unearned privilege. The color of your skin, your gender, your disability, your sexual orientation, your religion, your gender identity, your class, nor your immigration status. None of that determines how long you live, if you're paid equally for the work you do, if you're put on the school to prison pipeline, if you're disbelieved by your doctor when you say you are in pain, if you're sexually harassed at work, if you're racially profiled by law enforcement or randomly selected for a security screening at the airport every time you fly. <laughs> Still, I am an optimist. Those of you who know me know this. 
I believe a world without privilege and its step-sibling oppression is possible. I mean, no one ever thought the sun would set on the British Empire, but it did. <laughs> and my home country of Somalia was one of many, many nations, proud nations, that finally broke the shackles of racism and rose up from the crushing weight of colonialism. That's right. It's possible to dismantle institutions and systems that are well-funded and well-guarded and look like they'll last the ages. But it will take all of us doing our part in our little corner within our sphere of influence. And those of us who are the beneficiaries of compounded privilege have a special duty to put that privilege towards the service of breaking down barriers, evening the playing field, and chipping away at the institutional and structural barriers that allow inequities to persist. For instance, if you are a white, heterosexual, able-bodied, college-educated, cis male, you have a special role to play in this fight. But it's not just this group that bears a responsibility. It's all of us. Because each of us, if you look carefully, undoubtedly holds privilege of some kind, including the fact that you are a graduate of this elite institution called the Goldman School of Public Policy. So you ask, how can we do this? Well, I believe the first step is allyship. To win this fight, we need allies. So what exactly is allyship? Allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and re-evaluating, where a person who has privilege seeks ways to be in solidarity with individuals and communities that are marginalized. Allyship is not an identity. It is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals and communities. As someone who's seen good, effective, and meaningful allyship, and as someone who strives to do the same, there are some tips I'd like to share with you today if you'll indulge me. Rule number one, listen, really listen. Be genuine in seeking to learn from the experiences of other people. Really listening can be difficult. I know, I've tried it. <laughs> because it may seem like you and your community are being called out as responsible for oppression. And often, natural reactions to this are guilt, shame, fear, and defensiveness. Which brings me to rule number two. It's not about you. It's not about you. So it's a good idea to take the ego out of the picture and do that early on and deal with those feelings of guilt and shame and fear and defensiveness. Often we spend a lot of energy to prove ourselves as not those oppressors, to really be useful as allies. But it's not about you. Step back. Let go of the power and the control. Be curious and be open. And be ready to sit with the discomfort. Don't fight it. Rule number three. It's all about you. <laughs> Too often the work is outward when it needs to be inward. We, call, we can fall into the trap of changing others and changing institutions, but not changing ourselves. Center your own healing 
and unlearning and understand your own privilege and power. This means also reckoning with how you have benefited from systems of oppression at the expense of others. Rule number four, do the work at home. Educate and work within your sphere of influence with your families and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. Be an example to them. Be willing to put your body on the line by holding others in your community accountable. The next rule, please learn about history and understand the legacies of repression and resistance. Ground your work in knowledge of what has happened historically and the ongoing legacies of oppression that are still present in our institutions and systems. And last, to hell with good intentions. Sometimes people have well-intentioned actions that are downright harmful and paternalistic. So please, make sure that you have more than just good intentions in your ally toolbox. Lastly, please look within. Find that degree of privilege that you hold and put it to work every day because white supremacy and patriarchy and xenophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia and all of the other ugly prejudices don't take a day off. Be a good, authentic, thank you. Be a good, authentic, tireless ally. Speak up, push back, question the status quo, kick up some dust, take some risks, and yeah, show some outrage. Equality is possible, equity is possible. We need you, humanity needs you. Thank you. And now I would like to welcome Professor Steve Raphael to the podium. Thank you. He was chosen by the class of 2018 to be the faculty speaker. Welcome. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, to family and friends of our graduating students, welcome to UC Berkeley on this very happy day. And to our graduates, congratulations on this momentous and hard-earned achievement. I'm honored to have been invited to be your faculty speaker today. It's rare that I have the opportunity to reflect upon our students and alumni and the impacts that the graduates of our relatively small school have on the world. Hence, I am grateful for this opportunity to share my thoughts with you and pause and reflect on what we are collectively trying to, to achieve. I'd like to begin, however, by addressing your family and friends and bring them up to speed on what you've been doing uh, and what's likely to come. And I'm motivated by, by a few things. First of all, I, I'm, a, I'm a proud parent of my eldest child who's gone off to college in his first year. And there, there's something about sending off your loved one. Your people really care and they want to know what it is you're doing. And then you call them and say, hey, kiddo, how's classes? And you get, oh, they're all right. You know. <laughs> what are you learning? A little of this, a little of that. You know. So I'm, I'm going to try to fill that in for you so they don't have to do it. Okay, I'm gonna, Second, I like to think on my own experience when I went off to graduate school, I had just finished my undergraduate studies and I told my parents that I was going off to get a PhD in economics. 
Neither of them had been to college, and they were a little puzzled by the whole thing. And they had a, a bunch of questions for me, like, didn't you just go to college? You know? <laughs> what, what did you do the first time? You got thrown out of there? So I, I had to say, no, I, have, I promise it's not a do-over. I didn't, I didn't mess it up. This actually happens. And the second question was, what exactly are you studying? You know? And I said, well, economics is this amazing thing. You know, there are these mathematical models of how humans behave, and then you take statistics, and you can do whatever you want with it. And my father looked at me and said, okay. And I later heard him tell somebody that I was in law school. <laughs> Third, what are you going to do with that? And, of course, at the time I had no answer for them because I was figuring that out uh, in real time. However, I have a good sense of what that answer is for you guys, and so I'm willing to hazard a guess for this graduating class. So to prevent this awkward conversation with your family and friends, and so you can move straight to the celebrating, I'm going to try to answer these questions for you. Okay? Needless to say, the members of our graduating class certainly did not do over college in pursuing their PhDs, their MPPs, and their MPAs. This class brought a wealth of professional experience with them to UC Berkeley, including work as teachers, social workers, consultants, professional researchers, physicians, staff members for legislators and other policymakers in the local, state, and federal government, as well as work with international organizations. They were admitted to our program from an incredibly competitive pool of applicants. For these students, graduate school was a careful and deliberate choice. Most came to us to deepen their knowledge of the skills and tools used in the policy process and public decision-making in general, to expand their toolkits, to position themselves to assume positions where it is possible to impact the world systematically, and to pivot or take their careers to the next level. Now, what exactly did they do during their time with us? They studied advanced statistics, microeconomic reasoning, political and policy analysis, leadership, ethics, strategy, management, and innovation. They worked on team and individual projects for actual clients through our IPA, capstone, and APA requir uh, requirements, addressing a wide spectrum of problems. Our second-year MPP students produced reports on topics ranging from providing a blueprint for reforming the tax collection system in Burma to statistically modeling when police chases go wrong in Los Angeles to, to how to properly measure deforestation to addressing malnutrition in Guatemala. Our MPP students produced excellent capstone projects on topics ranging from the effect of the U.S. opioid epidemic on Mexico, addressing air pollution in Delhi, to policy options for addressing homelessness in Oakland. While our PhD program is relatively small, our students consistently make research, major research contributions, producing cutting-edge research on everything from the role of executive authority in the policy process, to anti-poverty policy, to research on national security, to assessments of the efficacy and fairness of the criminal justice interventions, to fundamental philosophical inquiries into the nature and role of equity in policy analysis and public decision making. Your programs list the titles of each of the PhD dissertations for this year's graduates and the master's thesis for the MPP and MPA programs, and I would highly recommend spending a little time reading through them. You'll just be amazed by the breadth of topics they've done, and, and uh, if you can get to actually see some of them, just the professionality of, of, uh, of their work. On the lighter side, the students in all of our programs spent countless hours in room 250, okay, which is our, our classroom, much time in the living room couches, oodles of time in the cave, or La Cueva, which is what we call our, our windowless computer room. Okay? They drank copious and record-breaking amounts of coffee. Okay? 
work side by side with the faculty and staff as research assistants and graduate student instructors. And frankly, if we didn't have them working with us, the school wouldn't, wouldn't operate. So we, we value that highly. And they've also developed deep friendships and professional relationships that they will draw upon for years to come. From the perspective of a faculty member that works closely with our students, I observe remarkable yet gradual transformations during their time at GSPP that is likely not apparent to the students themselves, but will probably become apparent with the benefit of hindsight. Everyone comes to Goldman with fire in their bellies and passion about specific policy problems. Over time, I witness consistently their thinking sharpen and become more disciplined. I see growing fluency and comfort with sophisticated concepts and techniques and the almost instinctual incorporation of these techniques into their worldview and their work. I observe the development of deep expertise, subtle ideas, and truly creative, authoritative, and impactful analysis. Perhaps more, most importantly, I observe a shift towards crafting solutions rather than simply pointing out problems and a growing confidence in their ability to do so. A few weeks back, after sitting through three excellent presentations of master's students' thesis in the section that I was teaching, I was just awestruck by these transformations and how the same students who were stressing through our demanding first year of coursework became these careful and professional young colleagues. I commented to my students that I wish their past selves could see their future selves at the front of the room. Now, I imagine that there are probably many situations where you don't want that to happen, so we might want to put some limits on that superpower. But <laughs> presenting your final, your final projects are, are, is really a sight, a sight to see. I've been teaching at the Goldman School for nearly 20 years. I keep in touch with our alumni and frequently interact with many professionally, sometimes working with them, sometimes working for them. I also read about them in the press or hear through the grapevine about their careers. Being able to see various careers at different points in time, I can say confidently that our graduates are going to go on to do amazing things and predict that these members of the class will, uh, will do so as well. And so I want to give you a few examples. So one of our alum, Nani Colorati, was central in setting up the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau before going on to be appointed as the Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Barack Obama. Another alum, Ann Veneman, served as the Secretary of Agriculture under George, President George W. Bush before becoming the Executive Director of UNICEF. Following a recent scandal involving the Oakland Police Department and the quick firing of resignations of three successive police chiefs, another of our alum, Sabrina Landreth, who had, been at the Oakland, who, who had been the Oakland City Administrator at the time, was literally put in charge of the police department, with all command staff directly reporting to her while a new chief was identified. And it was literally one minute she's in class, next minute she's in charge of the Oakland Police Department. <laughs> so we have alumni who have been appointed as ambassadors, who enter the Foreign Service and will enter the Foreign Service, who work in the federal government, think tanks, consultings, who are researchers in multinational agencies, hold positions at top universities, we have a lock on the city and county of San Francisco, with city employees across agencies jokingly referring to the Goldman School Mafia. <laughs> so parents, spouses, and loved ones don't worry they're going to get jobs. Okay? And they learned a lot while they're here. Okay? So having brought our guests up to speed, I'd like to offer some final thoughts and advice to our graduates that I hope will be helpful to your future. Of course, you might take my advice with a, a grain of salt. I'm going to give you professional advice, and I've been in school almost all my life. Uh, I was, you know, went from undergraduate, had a year off where I kind of put in more hours at the used record store, and then went to graduate school and became a professor. So it's kind of like I'm entering the 46th grade in the fall. Okay? <laughs> that being said, I do get out of the ivory tower at every opportunity, and I've worked with many public agencies and various projects with actual policymakers, and so I've got opinions. I'm going to offer them to you. Okay? 
First, many of you will surely find yourselves in challenging positions with great responsibility and very, very soon. It's quite natural to feel overwhelmed, perhaps as you may have felt when first coming to graduate school. This is not a bad thing. I believe that we often learn and grow the most when we feel like our heads are just above water, and maybe they're a little underwater too. Of course, it's not healthy to be in that position forever. However, the more challenging situations that we encounter, confront, and negotiate, the easier it becomes to adapt, to exercise resilience and resourcefulness, and to be ready in the event that substantial responsibility is thrust upon us. Be patient, listen to those around you, ask questions, don't be afraid to ask for help, and draw on your past experiences and successes overcoming challenges for strength, and you'll be fine. Second, as your careers progress, you'll increasingly be in the position to help others along. At one time or another, we have all benefited from someone offering encouragement, cutting us a break, offering feedback, guidance, and mentorship through various small and sometimes not so small acts. I personally have had several life-changing mentors, from a high school guidance counselor who literally forced a C student to fill out a college application, to senior colleagues here who quietly and selflessly helped my career along, often without my immediate knowledge. As your careers and lives progress, I urge you to be cognizant of the people following in your footsteps and make the effort to share your experience to encourage and to offer guidance. As, as economists like to say, there'll be a multiplier effect, and you should do that. <laughs> Finally, I want to get back to the fire in your bellies that prompted you to come to graduate school in the first place. Your studies and training at GSPP have heavily emphasized discipline thinking, quantification, articulating costs and benefits, confronting trade-offs, considering political and legal feasibility, and so on. Sometimes this attention to detail and to focus, and the focus on concepts of efficiency may feel cold, calculating, and clinical. However, being rigorous and thorough does not require that you check your humanity at the door, or that somehow your values and beliefs pertaining to issues of justice, equity, or sustainability must somehow take a back seat. To the contrary, our hopes and intentions are that what you have learned here will help you in addressing issues about which you are passionate, make you more effective, and ultimately make a positive impact on the world. The fire and passion that you brought with you to graduate school is what makes working with you while you're here such a privilege for, you, for me and for, for the faculty and for the staff, for everybody at UC Berkeley, and is in large part responsible for the many amazing contributions to the public good that I'm certain that you will make. So to summarize, go forth with confidence in yourself, but also with a bit of humility. Help those coming after you and do good. So to the graduating class of 2018, congratulations. I look forward to bragging about you to future classes. So it is my pleasure to welcome Elena Yarmoski, who will present the MPP class gift to, you, to the school. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Elena, and I'm here on behalf of Kimberly Rubens and Beth Spittler. We are the 2018 MPP class gift committee. Um, the graduating MPP class is proud of our commitment to diverse and inclusive policymaking. As a class, we believe that policy should be centered in the lived experiences of impacted individuals and that the policymakers themselves should reflect the breadth of these individuals' unique identities and experiences. For our class gift, we as a class wanted to give GSPP community 
something that would not only reflect this commitment, but would also inspire inclusive, representative policymaking from years of GSPP students to come. We are proud to announce that, as our 2018 MPP class gift, we are creating an, a visual installation featuring 25 former Goldman School alumni of the year. Photos of these 25 alumni, all of whom have dedicated their careers to bettering the world through policy, will hang on the wall of room 105 in the Goldman School's historic building. Beautiful handcrafted wooden frames have been provided by Sapphire Pine, an eco-driven, woo! <laughs> An eco-driven furniture company started by 2018 MPP students, Sam Schabacher and Sandra Lupian. In addition, we are working with GSPP faculty and staff to write a formal policy that codifies the Alumni of the Year selection process to, in, to make sure that commitment to inclusive policymaking is one of the primary criteria for selection of Alumni of the Year. We are grateful to our classmates for their unwavering commitment to bettering the GSPP community and for their dedication to making this gift a reality. We'd also like to thank the Goldman School staff and faculty with a particular shout out to Martha Chavez for making this gift possible. We look forward to this installation serving as an inspiration and comfort to GSPP students, not only next year, but for many years to come. Thank you. And I believe we have Carrie Barnes um, and Allison Bormel who are going to present the MP MPA class gift. Hi everyone, Carrie and I are excited to announce that the MPA class of 2018 raised 22, more than $2,200 towards our class gift with 100% of our class's participation. And we've really mastered the efficiency criteria, so we are not going to have you sit any longer. We have no speech prepared, except, and we're also very utilitarian, so our gift is um, very functional. We are donating a bench to the school that you can remember us by always. Um, and any uh, extra funds are going to be going to scholarships for future MPA students. Um, so with that, we want to get the show on the road. Thank you for your time. And thank the faculty and staff for their investment in us. Yeah. And now we want to call up Professor Sarah Anzia, who is going to be announcing the Outstanding GSI Award. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, it's my pleasure to present the award for Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor. So each year at commencement, we present it to a graduate who has worked as a GSI for a GSPP course. Um, this year, the Outstanding GSI Award goes to Elena Yarmoski. Elena, can you come up? So Elena was a GSI for my politics class this past fall. It was a little calmer than the year before. <laughs> but she still did a wonderful job. <laughs> the students at the Goldman School spend a lot of time thinking about the best ways to address policy problems. 
But of course, making public policy requires more than just having a good policy solution. You also have to have a political strategy. Um, and you, most of the time, getting your preferred policy enacted or something even close requires collective action. It requires negotiation, maybe dealing with an interest group that vehemently opposes you. Um, it in, in involves understanding what's important to the elected officials and what they're, what they're thinking about. And it involves building coalitions. So that's what this class is about. Um, and in lieu of a final exam or a final paper, we have a budget simulation where I saw many of you. And each student is assigned a role. Most are U.S. Senators, but we also have members of the Presidential Administration and the media and the Congressional Budget Office. So over the course of three weeks, culminating in a final session, the student's goal is to negotiate and adopt a budget resolution. So Elena was the GSI for um, the course this past fall, and she was truly outstanding. She taught weekly sections. She helped me prepare and oversee the budget simulation. Um, and she graded those um, four-page policy memos, um, the goal of which is to make sure you get heard. And she was incredibly thorough, thoughtful, and professional in her work. So I, I read the comments she left on students' memos. It, it blew my mind. She was very detailed. And she didn't go easy on them either, which I appreciated. Um, her comments were always right on point, And she really helped the students improve, improve their writing and their analysis. Elena also brought incredible creativity to her teaching of sections. Um, I really leave it up to the GSIs to decide uh, what to discuss in section, and Elena always had terrific ideas um, for how to extend discussions we had started in class into sections and to apply them to new examples and cases. I know the students loved having her as a GSI, and they got a great deal out of their time with her. So put simply, Elena did a fantastic job with this class. She's a talented teacher. She's smart. She's creative, organized, and hardworking. And the next folks who get to work with her are very, very lucky. So Elena, I'm very pleased to present you with the 2018 Outstanding GSI Award. My name is Erica Weisinger, and I taught one of the APA classes this spring semester. I'll be presenting this year's Smolensky Prize for Outstanding Policy Analysis um, to an MPP graduate. So first, what is an APA? Um, the APA is it's known as the Advanced Policy Analysis, and it's GSPP's master's thesis for the MPP degree where the student works with a real client to help them solve a policy problem using GSPP's public policy toolkit. The award was established in honor of former GSPP Dean Eugene Smolinski and is presented at commencement each year. Faculty from each APA section are asked to nominate one APA project from their section to be considered for this honor. Then a committee of faculty who are not teaching an APA review all nominated projects to determine which project is selected. This year's projects were evaluated by Avi Feller and David Woolley. Before I announce the award winner, I would like to acknowledge the MPP graduates who were nominated by their APA faculty advisor. Please stand up as I call your name. Manuel Coquette. James Hawkins.
Elizabeth Lewin. Adam Orford. Lisa Kwan. Lindsay Rosenfeld. Ahmad Sultan. Rashni Vijay Wadwani. The graduate selected for the Smolensky Prize for Outstanding APA is Manuel Coquette. I'll say just a few words about Manuel's um, APA. Um, it's really a testament to his ability to explain his work um, clearly and succinctly and in a manner that a policymaker could understand um, that, that I'm able to stand here and tell you what, it's, that what his APA was about. Um, so his, <laughs> but again, the title of his APA was Pricing the Carbon Externality in Energy Storage, um, specifically catered to New York State, which is really a pioneer in... Um, and innovative practices around uh, getting, getting ahead of climate change. Um, so Manuel's APA developed and evaluated mechanisms for introducing a carbon price into the market for energy storage in New York State. So he, he conducted quite sophisticated modeling of marginal carbon emissions at different times and locations in the state, and he demonstrated the value of such a mechanism in enhancing social surplus. What really... Um, impressed me the most about his APA, in addition to his very sophisticated analysis, was his consideration of how different users could or could not understand the pricing mechanism that he came up with. So he really was able to take a technical and complex problem and formulate a solution in an accessible manner to policymakers. So Manuel, we just, um, I felt so lucky to get to teach you this, to be, to have you in my section this um, past semester, and congratulations on this award. Hello everyone, my name is Hector Cardenas, and I'm a GSPP, MPP, and PhD alum, and I have had the distinct pleasure and privilege to lead one of the advanced policy analysis classes and two of the MPA capstone classes this semester. It's my honor to present the second ever Bardak Prize for Outstanding Capstone Analytic Project. This award, named after our, our and my dear friend, colleague, and mentor, Eugene Bardak, the father of the Eightfold Path, recognizes the best capstone analytic project written by a graduate of GSPP's newest program, the Master in Public Affairs. Like the APA, the CAP is the culmination of our students' work at GSPP and affords them the opportunity to work with a real client on a real policy issue and deploy all the tools they have acquired during their education at the school. Faculty from each capstone section nominate one capstone project 
from their section to be considered for this honor. This year, the three faculty members, Jane Molden, Todd Achilles, himself uh, a past recipient of the Bardock Award, and I reviewed all nominated projects and unanimously selected a winner. The faculty nominated the following graduates for consideration for the Bardock Prize in alphabetical order, and please stand when I call your name. Carrie Barnes. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Hagedorn. Victor Sim. And Matthew Winters. The graduate selected as winner of the Bardak Prize for Outstanding Capstone Analytic Project is Victor Sim. Victor's project was carried out for the Community Foundation of San Joaquin, and it examines the potential for international air connectivity in Stockton. Please come. Thank you. Victor asked the question as to why a large and economically important region, such as the northern San Joaquin Valley, home to over 1.5 million people, he will tell you that it's larger than 11 states, and with regional GDP larger than that of six states, does not have international air connectivity. Victor approaches this question through a detailed and exhaustive analysis of the economic, political, social, demographic, and technical reasons for the current state of affairs at Stockton Metropolitan Airport. To do this, he uses an impressive variety of data sources. Now, some are to be expected of our students, you know, census data, GDP data, things like that. But Victor went beyond the obvious sources, leveraging Airbnb, civil aviation, migration, tourism, transportation network, among many other sources of data to make his case. Seeing how Victor, sort of observing over the course of the semester, how Victor put together his paper, made me think of someone painstakingly assembling one of those 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzles, looking for just the right piece to complete the argument or diagnose a problem. Victor's paper is very well structured and written and skillfully presented. As he builds a case for why Stockton should have an international airport, he seeks to find the root causes that explain why this has not happened yet, even though both the community and some international airlines have been trying for some time. This is the part of the analysis that I find most interesting and where Victor does just the kind of work that we expect of our students. He carefully teases out the reasons assembling evidence, and coming to conclusions about the forces that keep the status quo. His conclusion is that political and bureaucratic factors are keeping Stockton down. Anti-competitive pressures from the nearby international airports in San Francisco, Oakland, and Sacramento, and the misalignment between the mandate of the Customs and Border Protection Agency and the way in which their budget is allocated and prioritized. It turns out there are no direct flights from Stockton to Guadalajara, not because there is no demand, but because there is no one available to stamp passports. Now talk about government failure there. This is exactly the kind of work that we train our students to go out and improve. Congratulations, Victor, for an excellent conclusion to your MPA degree.
is my pleasure to present the PhD in Public Policy to Natalie Ahn. Natalie, please come to the stage. Natalie's dissertation is titled, Expansions of Executive Authority, Government Leaders' Near-Term Pressures and Long-Term Fates. In this dissertation, Natalie sets out to better understand why we see so many leaders around the world making moves to expand their authority. Not all presidents do this, of course, but many do, even in democratically elected governments. In the literature on American politics, there's sort of a feel-good explanation for this, uh, for why presidents, meaning U.S. presidents, are continually trying to expand their authority. Because presidents are held accountable for just about everything, gas prices, the economy, even th things they can't control. And so in the interest of their own legacy, presidents try to expand their authority so they can get things done, um, since they're going to be held accountable anyway. But Natalie points out that in democratically elected governments, presidents often expand their authority for other reasons, to protect themselves, to cling to power, to make sure rivals can't oust them from their position. In this, in, in, it's this sort of move that Natalie sets out to explain. In developing democracies, why do some presidents expand their authority and cling to power while others don't? There are so many innovations in this dissertation that I can't talk about everything, so I'm just going to have to summarize a couple of them. First, there's her theoretical argument. We know that opponents of the, many of these leaders who consolidate power try to hold them accountable. Many leaders are prosecuted or they're sanctioned when they leave office. And Natalie argues that the way these punishments are carried out affects future leaders' propensity to consolidate power. In other words, current leaders consider the fates of past leaders in assessing their own situation. And so we can use data on past leaders' fates to predict whether later presidents are going to consolidate power. And if the punishments of former leaders appear to be politicized or arbitrary, Natalie argues that that's going to increase the likelihood that future leaders in that country will act to consolidate their own power. Now, this is really tricky to study empirically. And the most basic problem is, all right, how do we know when presidents are trying to expand their authority? What counts as a power expansion? How do we measure that? Here, Natalie has made two big innovations. The first is that rather than relying on media accounts to sort of create a data set of when leaders expanded their authority, which is what many folks have done, she collected years, decades worth of actual government documents. So she went to Peru to collect all of the executive decrees from that country from 1980 to 2016. And then she also collected all of the executive decrees from Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Bolivia for all the years that she could. By the way, an executive decree is uh, the president making policy directly. And this is a primary way that presidents expand their authority. So they might take over an agency or reorganize. So she collected up to around 75,000 executive decrees from five countries. And she used those decrees to come up with measures of changes in executive authority using these government documents. All right, how did she do this using 75,000 documents? There's a reason why most people who study decrees just count them. They use simple measures like how many decrees were there in a month. Natalie was able to do something better. She used natural language processing and machine learning to determine from the text of the decrees which ones changed the institutional concentration of power in the country. So she took thousands of decrees in Spanish, had developed algorithms that allowed her to figure out who did what to whom, and she identifies which of those expanded power. Let's be clear, I did not teach her these methods. <laughs> she didn't even take classes on them. 
Over the course of about a year, she taught herself these methods, and she wrote papers for and attended natural language processing conferences. And then she applied those tools to her dissertation to create measures of expansion of presidential authority. It's really amazing. And then she combined these data with other information on each of these countries, including data on what happened to former leaders, were they sanctioned and how, if, if they were sanctioned, whether there was a later reprieve, whether they were rewarded with some nice private sector job afterward. And what she finds is that presidents issue more of these power-expanding decrees when their, pres- when their predecessors were punished in a politicized, arbitrary fashion, such as if they were prosecuted and then acquitted shortly after, or if the punishments rendered didn't appear appropriate for their behavior while in office. So in seeking to better understand the causes and consequences of unchecked executive authority, she finds it's not necessarily whether predecessors are held accountable, it's rather whether those former predecessors appear to have been punished in an objective way rather than a politicized way. So while working on this dissertation, Natalie discovered, as I've told you, the power of computational methods. Um, She wanted to find a job that allowed her to use those skills, and also a job that would leverage her past experience as a journalist and also her expertise in politics and policy. And I thought, okay, good, this sounds great. It comes as no surprise to me or to anyone else who's worked with Natalie that she set her sights on one job, and she got it. Um, Starting next month, she'll be working as a data analyst for a small company called Hoodline and Pixel Labs. This is a company that's using machine learning to automatically provide you with local news content or neighborhood news wherever you happen to be. So congratulations to Natalie on a terrific dissertation and on her new job. It is my pleasure to confer upon Natalie on the Doctor of Philosophy degree in Public Policy. Next up, Professor Steve Raphael to present the second doctoral degree. It is my pleasure to present the PhD degree in Public Policy to Patricio Dominguez Rivera. Patricio, please come to the stage. going to embarrass you now. Okay. <laughs> so prior to coming to GSPP, Patricia earned a BS in civil engineering and a master's in sociology from Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile. He also served as the national director of Techo Chile, a nonprofit organization that mobilizes youth volunteers to combat extreme poverty in Latin America. He earned his MPP degree at Goldman and then continued on to our PhD our PhD program, completing advanced coursework in econometric methods, microeconomic theory as applied to labor markets and demographics, and on the economics of crime. Patricio's dissertation focuses on what determines criminal offending and the manner in which subtle changes in policy can have large impacts in crime rates. Among social scientists that study crime, there's an active debate between those who conceptualize criminal offending as a choice that's sensitive to potential costs and benefits and deterrence and those who argue that criminal offending is more dependent on situational factors, such as the salience of criminal opportunity or the likelihood that a potential victim may resist. At heart, this debate centers around the degree to which people commit crime act in a rational, premeditated manner versus responding impulsively to variation in opportunities. 
And it, the, these two alternative models also have quite different policy prescriptions about how we address urban crime, whether we rely heavily on, on the threat of punishment versus trying to design an environment that is, is to use the technical language of, uh, of the field, less criminogenic. Patricio's, de- Patricio's dissertation involves several fundamental empirical and theoretical contributions to this debate. A major portion of his dissertation investigates the unintended consequences of a transportation reform in Santiago, Chile, that aimed to integrate the city's bus system with the city's metro through electronic fare cards and better coordination of bus routes. The reform created two changes that provide variation in criminal opportunities that served as the focus of Patricio's dissertation. First, bus driver compensation was shifted from a proportion of fare revenue collected traditionally in a cash tray at the, at the entrance to the bus that was usually referred to as fish tanks, uh, to fix salaries. So rather than having to give, you know, be able to collect a portion of the fare, they got paid a salary like everybody else. Later, cash was removed from the buses entirely with the introduction of electronic fare cards. Patricio essentially gathered information on every single uh, criminal offense that occurred in Santiago, Chile, and that, that uh, occurred in different public places, including public transportation, and found that the change in compensation structure okay, basically led to a very large increase in bus robberies as drivers no longer had to fend off potential robbers to be able to bring home a salary. But at the same time, given that robbers would exhibit less resistance to, uh, to uh, uh, an assailant, the lethality of the events went down, right? Because essentially to, to rob the bus driver, they no, longer had to, they no longer had to use a gun and could use le- less lethal means. So you already had one very interesting finding, which was the, the compensation structure of the way bus drivers was paid, in addition to exposing them to risk, was actually increasing the lethality of crime uh, in, in, uh, in the city. Second, the introduction of fare cards, robber, uh, with the introduction of fare cards, robberies in uh, Chilean buses basically were eliminated, that essentially eliminating the target and altering the way that people paid for their transportation led to a very large increase in public safety. What's most fascinating is that when one compares the magnitude of these changes, whether it's the behavior of victims to a change in incentives or essentially the response of, of uh, people who were committing crimes to removing cash from the bus, the, the sort of equivalent policy expenditures, whether it be on police or increases in incarceration or what have you, that would have similar size effects as to making small change in, uh, in the environment were enormous. And this essentially revealed how you can make small changes to environment and you can have first-order uh, impacts on the quality of life in a city that are not socially costly. Patricio's dissertation also studies the effect of ambient light on criminal fending, the relationship between transportation, service extensions, and the geography of crime, as well as how we should measure the social cost of crime and try to think about how to, how to make uh, choices in criminal justice policy with some degree of rationality. I'd like to say that, that, uh, that you know, the PhD is, is the proverbial heavy lift. Um, students spend several years taking incredibly challenging courses, pursue research projects that are largely self-directed with you know, help from their advisors, but they're pretty much doing all the work. Um, they're extremely technical and sophisticated, and they're entirely self-initiated. Their interests are driving them, they're formulating uh, questions, and they're basically being asked to create new knowledge that's, of, of, that's general in nature and that will help push forward, uh, push forward a, a given body of work. Patricio has been an amazing student to work with, from whom I've learned an enormous amount, with whom I hope to work in the future, and I, I look forward to watching his career blossom. 
In June, Patricio will be moving to Washington, D.C. with his wife, Gabriela, and his beautiful children, Elisa and Beltran, to take a position as a research fellow at the Inter-American Development Bank. Okay. It is my pleasure to confer upon Patricio Dominguez Herrera the Doctor of Philosophy degree in Public Policy. Congratulations, Patricio. It is my pleasure to begin the presentation of the Master of Public Policy degrees. Lauren Gabrielle Alexander. Steven Cesar Almasan. Shivi Anand. Mickey Berstow. Marina Constantina Valeria. Rohini Banskoda. Brooke Deborah Barron. Victor Hugo Batten. Zineb Buzaba. <laughs> Hannah Burak. <laughs> Courtney Colburn. Manuel Coquette. Lisbeth Amelia DeBramo. Anna Dunning. Rowan El Halabi. Lauren Finke. 
Michael Paul Fleischman. Paula Jean Daouz Fanasher Tang. Manasa Gumi Jesus Guzman James Hawkins Margaret Huntington Shruti Jen Utah Kawasaki Heidi Kim Sibel Catonius Sarah Laderman Pamela Larson Elizabeth Lewin Sandra Lupian Yale Macagon Paulina Muñoz Maqueda Escamilla (laughs) 
Nora Soledad Martin White. Taryn Mayer. Alethea McFarlane. Hannah Melnico. Daniel Santiago Mendez. Adha Mengis. Celeste Eileen Middleton Angela Miller Kelsey Mozola Sanghamitra Mukherjee Sean Newlin Jonathan Palasak Marie Parent Lillian Sangita Patil Vishan Patnayak Michael Pimentel Rachel Pizzatella Haswell Hinane Kazi Lisa King Daisy Kwan Lisa T. Kwan Ruchika Radhakrishnan.
Friedhoff. Haley Rakes. Elizabeth Raja Singh. Nafara Danielle Reesh. Lindsay Rosenfeld. Kimberly Rubens. Wesley Saver. Samuel Schaubacher. Jennifer Schultz. Ben Shapiro. Rebecca Siegel. Rebecca Stack Ahmed Sultan Yuya Takagi Steven Taylor Irena Titova Toppin Jr. Maria Torchaninova. Elizabeth Yuri. Roshni Vijay Wadwani. 
white. Elijah Wood. Elena Yarmoski. April Yaney. Richard Zarella. Sonia Ming Zhu. And now we will begin the presentation of the Master of Public Affairs degrees by Professor Jane Malden. Well, this is a great pleasure. Sian Ballesteros. Subhashri Banerjee. Carrie Elise Barnes. Purushottam Basava. Alison Bormel. Anthony Brown. <laughs> Shivali Malhotra Chuhan. Lorraine Chu. Ryan Klosnitzer. Darielle Reginald Dunstan. Lauren Kate Gambell. Kevin Hagedorn. Leslie Covert Hamilton. Muna Idao. Jasmine Jones. Nicole Lindler. Viva Mogi.
Angelika. Vijay Nera. Denise O'Connor. Dennis O'Connor. <laughs> Joshua Ayler. Hilary Palanza. Monica Peck. Vernon Pittman. Julie Sell. Victor Sim. Kenna Stormer Gibson. Marissa Michelle Seps. Megan Watson. Jeanette Winkle Wickelgren. Matthew Winters. Emily Wolf. Moses Zapien. That is fun. You could see a lot of people as we were taking pictures were just trying to get away as fast as they could. Uh, and I don't blame them. Um, now we're at the point where we actually have three options. Exit, voice, and loyalty. Let's try all three. First, I will read a statement that will provide for your exit, for your graduation from GSBP. Then I hope you will all voice your happiness. And then, finally, I really do hope you'll remain loyal to GSPP. Uh, our alums are one of the best features of the school, and we really need your help as we move forward. So, thanks. So, let me start with exit. This is something I get to say. This is the enormous power I have. So, all graduates, please stand. By virtue of the authority vested in me by the President and Regents of the University of California, I grant you this degree from the Goldman School of Public Policy.
And that's good voice, good voice, good voice. So this concludes the class of 2018 commencement exercises. Guests are invited to join us for a reception at 2607 Hearst Avenue. That's the main school. Uh, congratulations again to the Goldman School of Public Policy class of 2018. And now, as I said, I hope you'll all remain loyal to the Goldman School. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so very much.